Hey everyone, this is Lila Proença and this is The Honest by Vetahead. Every episode, I get to pick the brains of brilliant, inspiring and honest guests about their lives, passions and everything and anything we want to discuss. We use the veterinary world just as an excuse to talk to fascinating people. Here today with me is my great friend, Dr. Christine Moter. What a pleasant conversation. I was thinking on how to best describe the mood and the feeling of our conversation. And I guess the best way is to say it felt like a romantic comedy. Talking to Christine is always so warm and calming, but funny at the same time. She has this way to see and live life that is so positive and light. We talked about the power of community, helping each other, imposter syndrome, and even how to use the bathroom to de-stress. We also couldn't avoid talking about how to navigate the world as a career woman, from meeting your significant other online to pregnancy while working in a zoo. At the time of this conversation, Dr. Moter was pregnant and expecting a little baby boy. I am so happy to announce since then, we have welcomed little Benjamin Thomas to this world, happy and healthy. Without further ado, Dr. Christine Moter. So welcome everybody to our VetaHead podcast, The Honest by VetaHead, when we use the veterinary world just as an excuse to talk to fascinating people. And I have nothing but a fascinating people with me today, Dr. Christine <laughs> Moulter. Thank you. I'm so glad you think I'm fascinating. <laughs> you are fascinating. You are a spiritual animal. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so Dr. Christine Moulter, um, she is a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine, so a specialist. Uh, one of the few, I just learned we are one of the few, like, 200-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not, not that many. In the world. Yeah, not that the many The planet. That's right. The galaxy, even. The galaxy! <laughs> I like that even better. Mm-hmm. Yes, so mm-hmm. um, one of the... Uh, one of the first things uh, things I ask on the podcast is, where did we meet? Oh, my gosh. And sometimes I'm surprised because, like, um, with our Dr. Sadar, with Miranda, I was surprised because I had no recollection, actually. Oh, no. Where we had met. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I hope I was nice to you. Oh, God. But do you remember where we met? Yeah, I do. So it was the Desert Tortoise Workshop in... 2014 in Las Vegas, I remember, and you were helping to teach the class, and I was there um, being as helpful as I could be, which probably wasn't all all that helpful at the time. And I remember we um, decided to go out to dinner, and we went with a few other people and got sushi, and then went to go see Cirque du Soleil afterwards, and then our mutual Did you sleep during it? No, did I, I was awake. I think, did I sleep a little bit through it? I think I was so tired that I slept a little bit. Oh, you might bit. have. <laughs> I didn't notice if you were sleeping or not. You I think it was the like, you know, in the in my end, so <laughs> you probably caught the highlights. But yeah, I remember we went there and Dr. Sadar, a mutual friend, um, was more familiar with Las Vegas. And I remember running from the sushi restaurant to Cirque du Soleil to get the tickets after the show started because she knew that they would be cheaper at that time. So I think we actually missed like the first 10 minutes, but we got a good deal on the tickets. So it was like a little insider information scoop there uh, <laughs> that she helped us get to the show and 
do it on a, a budget. Oh, that's awesome. I do not remember running, but I remember being so tired that day that I think I was like closing my eyes. <laughs> during the day. Like who does that during yeah. Secret Soleil? I mean, yeah. it's great. Uh, the show was great. It's just I was so tired. Yeah, yeah. But then we, but then we didn't meet again, right? Until right. we didn't see each other again until 2015. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Boards in 2015, right? So that the first year. Yeah, it's like looking around for the certificate with the year. But yeah, yeah, I think that's it was right 2015. because I passed 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, fall okay. of 2015. So like a year later and so yes a year later we're both at the board's exam feeling disappointed with ourselves uh uh, not passing the first go round, and i remember um just sort of being hunkered down in the trenches of misery together and deciding that we were gonna form a study group um with us and dr siddhar and a few others and then um that was really much needed camaraderie at that time that was very Sad and frustrating, yeah. I know. But just so everybody understands, this test you take to be a specialist, right? It's a very hard test. The passing rates yeah. are like 10 to 20%. Mm-hmm. And so I was alone there. I didn't know anyone. I mean, I, I knew you guys, mm-hmm. but not really. I actually didn't even know we had exchanged phone numbers, to be honest. <laughs> and so the way it works, you take day one, is the whole day of testing, and then at night, at 9 o'clock, you find out at the hotel if you have passed or not. Right. So you right. get that damn envelope, and then mm-hmm. you go to your room, and then mm-hmm. you find out. And that's when I found out I had not passed, and mm-hmm. I got a message from you, which I was there alone. Like, I was not even crying at that point because I, I guess I was just like, I don't even yeah, know what's so happening. so shocked, yeah. And the, the room next to me, they had passed. Oh. And they were all screaming and celebrating. Oh. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, so that's great. Hard. And then yeah. you texted me. You said, do you remember that you text? Hey, have no, you passed? I, I don't remember that specifically, but it does sound like something that I would do. Now knowing you, yes. But at that time, I was like, <laughs> oh, Christine Mote. I didn't even know I had her phone number. <laughs> Surprise. And, and it's like, did, and then did you pass? And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to say no. And then she's going to say, yeah, I passed. And it's going to be Oh my God, I'm going to kill myself now. And then you said, and then you follow like, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And then I think I just said, I didn't either. Can I go to a room? I think I just offered to go because I had to leave that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went there and then Miranda was there too. And yeah. Yeah. It's such a hard thing to go through because you um, work so hard for years, Mm -hmm. literally years. And then Mm -hmm. you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, every Mm -hmm. week for many weeks. Mm-hmm. leading up to the exam and you get there and it feels like a lot of pressure and you're not sure exactly what to expect. And there's a lot of other people who are there and um, it's hard. Uh, no, for me, it was hard not to feel um, the imposter syndrome. Like, Oh my goodness, what am I doing here with Do all you of feel these that way? other brilliant people sometimes? And I think during the boards exam, I definitely did. Um, because, because I a hundred percent feel and it's like that. And studying with you guys the first weeks, all I did after we hung up was cry. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Because oh it was like gosh. first of all, that night where we didn't pass and I went to your room and Miranda mm-hmm. was there and whatnot, I started talking to you guys and I was like I need to make them like me because I need to study with them. <laughs> oh, no. oh my gosh. And I was like, what can I do 
to make them <laughs> like me because I really, really need to study with them. Otherwise, I'm not going to pass. Oh so that was going through my mind. Oh. And then you guys did take me to study together in your group. And I couldn't believe. And I was like, it's a matter of time for them to find out I'm not at their level. Oh, so, my gosh. No and way. So I started studying. And I would hang up our Skype sessions and I would be like, I would go to Steven's side crying, crying, crying. I was like, they're so above my life. They're so oh above my, my league. Like, oh my gosh. And I no would cry, way. cry. Not at all. Not at all. I was Not like, oh all. man. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I would. You can rest assured that I definitely felt the same way about, you know, other people too. And, um, you know, had self-doubt and felt like, oh, I didn't work hard enough or I didn't do as much as this person, or I could have, should have, would have done more. And the truth is, is that um, it's just a very hard test and it's a very hard thing to go through. Um, And you can feel very prepared and you can be very surprised during the test. How would you compare that challenge to other things in your life, like level of difficulty? How would you rank it? Yeah, I think it's... um, I would say it's pretty darn difficult. Like on a scale of one to 10, probably a nine. And what would you consider vet school, getting to vet school? Oh, getting to vet school? Oh, I I guess I would consider that like a, you know, a a six or a seven, I would say. Oh, wow. And that's a nine. Yeah. And I think the reason why I say that is because, you know, getting into vet school, it was something that I could work on. And it's something that was more like a project that you could work mm-hmm. on and you'd have more chances to improve and you could get feedback and you didn't, I didn't feel the same level of pressure. Whereas I think with boards, I felt a much higher level of pressure. It's like you get one chance and then better luck next year and then one chance and better luck next year. And you put so much into it and so much emotion and you put so much more of your life on pause. Mm-hmm. Or I felt yes. I put so much yes. more of my life on pause for the board's exam. Whereas when um, I was trying to get to vet school, which I did not get in the first time I applied, I still, oh, wow. I still was like living my life and doing stuff that I like to do. And I felt like my quality of life was very good. Whereas with the boards exam and studying and prepping, I felt like my quality of life was so incredibly focused just on the test that there wasn't room for really anything else. And I think that's what made it so much more difficult, especially to be unsuccessful the first time around. Yeah. So for the listeners that not necessarily they are veterinarians or not mm-hmm. from our field, so this test you take is once a year only. Mm-hmm. And you can only take after, of course, you finish vet school. Mm-hmm. Then you go through one or two or three rounds of internships, mm-hmm. which each one with like a year length. Um, and then you do a residency that is three years. And mm-hmm. then, oh, then you need to publish mm-hmm. at our time five papers, scientific right. papers. And meet the criteria, and then you can take the test, which is once a year. And if you don't pass, you can take again as many times as you want, but it's just once a year. Right, right. So that period of your life, um, like one thing that was like so, and it's silly, but that marked me, was airplanes. So Mm -hmm. I was traveling a lot for work, Mm -hmm. and I would constantly be on the airplane, and I couldn't. I could never watch the movies mm-hmm. because I had to study. Mm-hmm. Like I never, during studying, I see what you're saying, like my life was so on pause that mm-hmm. 
I like any minute that we I had spared, I had to study. Mm-hmm. And so airplanes, like all the new movies, I was like, oh, I can't watch it. And mm-hmm. I know this sounds so silly and so first world problems, but I, I remember that when I went on a trip after I passed, after three years I passed and I went on a trip and I was like, I can watch a movie. I can't believe I can watch a movie. I was like, wow, I can watch a movie. Yeah, yeah. I felt the same way about TV. I was like, so happy to watch TV. So happy to watch TV. And feel like just this huge burden lifted. And to have um, the validation of finally, you know, passing the test after all of this hard work, that felt so good. And I know there's, you know, not to completely rag on the test, but I mean, definitely studying and being familiar with the literature, there's certainly benefits there. But gosh, it felt so good to be done with that yeah. level of stress and pressure. Yeah, it is insane. And uh, it's hard for the people that are with us. It's mm-hmm. hard on our spouses, if you have a spouse or friends or family yes, members or is. everything hits pause. And it is fair. Hard. Like, do you remember anything? Like there was so... Like, at the time, you were married already, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And how was it for Kent? Oh, my gosh. He was, um, (laughs) like to say that Kent was suffering right along with me. So we... I think it's fair. Yeah. When we were studying, I say we were studying for boards. (laughs) Which is also fair. (laughs) So if you want to have some good study tips, um, Kent is like an expert on the uh, boards exam. He will tell you exactly what he would do if he were studying for Steven says he can probably like pass Uh, or be very close to passing. (laughs) Gosh, I know. And he would say, oh, I would organize my binders this way and it's like all right honey you just uh when you get to that point let me know and i will help you copy and three hole punch and uh, collate all of your binders just you like did you everything me. printing um i did a lot of printing yes <gasps> i did a lot i did of everything printing. digital mm-hmm. i did a lot of printing and um, just the first page with the abstracts and then i hand wrote because i feel like my memory is better when i actually write by hand versus typing Mm-hmm. hand wrote notes on all of that so I had all of the raw journal abstracts oh I remember in your room in the office the right binders. you had piles yep all like the by piles. journal by ta- mm-hmm. texa mm-hmm. <gasps> yep and then I hand wrote because it just felt my memory was better so then after I had all of those articles sort of um, compiled I had stacks and stacks and stacks of just notes that I took if you had to guess how many pages were there oh my gosh Hundreds at least, hundreds at least. Well, just think of the A4 Thousands. package, oh and that's gosh. like a hundred, a thousand inside. Oh, I don't know, right? How... That typical one. Mm-hmm. How many? Lo- uh, probably at least six of those. <laughs> probably at least. I mean, it's a... your... oh, wow. yeah. So that's a lot. So Kent would do it. Kent would do it differently if he were taking the test for sure. But um, yeah, yeah. He he was uh, he was very supportive, but I think it was really a lonely time for him, if I had to pick one word for it, because Mm -hmm. we were living in uh, California at the time, and we didn't really know a whole lot of people out there. And the people we did know were primarily from my residency, so not always a lot of availability there. And then when we moved to um, Texas, it was also very lonely because we didn't know anybody out here. Mm-hmm. He's just starting a new job. Um, mm-hmm. You was, were just starting a new job. I was just starting a new job. We were in an apartment. It was a sort of a culture shock to move from Southern California to Texas as well. And the weather took a lot of adjusting and he felt um, 
like he just didn't have a lot of opportunities to socialize or to get outside and do the things that he liked to do. And Mm -hmm. he felt very alone. And I just wasn't available because Mm -hmm. I was studying and trying to establish myself in a new job. And I think that was the hardest part for him. Yeah, it is. It is something that it's a struggle Mm -hmm. like no other for like our spouses is really mm-hmm. hard. It, mm-hmm. it, and I live, I, my family is in Brazil. So yeah, I didn't see them for the longest time because like I can't afford to spend all this time there and not study. And yeah. And I think the third time, because in the second times you, you guys pass and then I didn't pass day two. I passed day one, mm-hmm. not day two. And mm-hmm. then that year I said, you know what? I'm not going to put my life on hold. Mm-hmm. Of course, I wasn't normal. Like, I, I just allowed myself to go visit my family in Brazil or something like that. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How long, did you, something. Go, how long did you go between seeing your your family? Like, what is the longest period of time during? I think it was during boards. And I think it was, like, two and a half years. Oh, my gosh. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think some of my family members came to visit me. But, like, my mom or my sister. But the majority of the time... Mm-hmm. Yeah, most two and a half, three years. For yeah, sure. that's a long time. It is yeah. really hard. And the other thing I, I, I talked to Miranda too, and I think mm-hmm. it's very important. I think nowadays when we have a student or someone starting vet school, or, mm-hmm. you know, we, you get many students mm-hmm. at your workplace, and yep. likewise I do, and they look at us and see us like diplomats and like we pass, and they think that's so unachievable and they mm-hmm. come and talk to me oh but I didn't get we have a lot of rotating interns applying for mm-hmm. residencies and internships and they come they said I didn't get it my like my life is ruined and I was like you you have no idea like how how many of us didn't get it first time how mm-hmm. many of us didn't pass mm-hmm. first time and and now they look at us and they think oh you know She's right there and I'll never get there because right. I don't have what she has. I don't have mm-hmm. what it takes. But mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting you said you did not you did not get into vet school first mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. uh, on your career, tell me a little bit about your failures there. Um, oh, sure. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And were you a good student like high school and all of that? Yeah, I would say I was a good student in high school and um, in an undergraduate in Undergrad, I definitely, you know, went out and had, you know, went to parties and socialized and did clubs and activities and all of that. So that was, you know, a more um, like balanced part of my life between my mm-hmm. personal life and my social life and my school life. And I felt, you know, that I I got good grades, not perfect grades, but mm-hmm. you know, for me that was that was exactly what I felt comfortable with because... So you weren't I, like a straight A student? Mm-mm. No, no, that's I That's so important for people to know. I wasn't either. <laughs> and I just think that's no. so important for people to know. Yeah, yeah. And I really struggled. Um, I actually really struggled, if I had to say, um, in math and science like physics and organic chemistry. And so when I was in um, undergraduate, I went to tutoring. I took summer school. I did those extra things that I knew that I needed to try to be successful. And I didn't always know I wanted to be a vet. Like, I don't think I decided until almost my, you know, the end of my second semester of my junior year. Like, I started in, like, political science, and then I thought I wanted to be a journalist, and then I thought I wanted to do anthropology, and there was a hot minute that I thought I wanted to be a folklorist. So, What is a folklorist? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's uh, I took a folklore of Wisconsin class, and it was 
amazing. And but what prof- is that? Professor was so inspiring. And it was just this guy, and he would just like travel around. He would talk to people about their experiences in their life and their ethnic background and their um, the town that they grew up in and like the stories and the culture surrounding the place wherever they were or their profession, like if they were a farmer or a miner or a tavern worker. And I was like, oh, this is so amazing. This is what and, I'm doing now with the podcast. This yeah, is literally what yeah, I'm doing. I love yeah. it. I'm a folklorist. Yeah. And it, it was just like <laughs> such a cool class. And we learned all about like these different like songs and different places and different foods. And I was like, oh, this is so amazing. And um, I talked to him one day and he's like, oh, he said, oh yeah, I've been in this department since, you know, the 70s and this is what I'm doing. And I said, oh, this is so amazing. And I was like, oh, and like, you know, how many other people do this? He's like, uh, nobody. Okay. So, so there's uh, one, one, one potential job. Not many job opportunities right there. Okay. Well, um, that sort of, uh, dash my hopes there, but I thought for a while, I was like, what an amazing, amazing job that would be to just go around and talk to people and just gather their stories and like Mm. make books and teach about it. So anyways, the, the point being, I tried like a bunch of I tried a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. and then I kept going back to veterinary medicine. So I worked as a kennel assistant when I was in high school, and this is back in the day where I like was looking at the classified advertisements in the newspaper, and I saw an ad for a poop scooper on the weekends, and somebody like clean the bathrooms and like fold the laundry, and you know I used to like power wash the spider webs off the outside of the building and, you know, eventually got more integrated into the animal um, parts of the practice, which I thought was really amazing because I always really loved animals. And, um, you know, at the time I was like very into dogs, like my grandmother showed Irish setters and I used to go to the dog shows with her and I was like super into it. And, um, and you know, between that experience and then really liking biology and then getting a job in a laboratory, um, you know, where I was going to undergraduate sort of just kept pushing me back towards veterinary medicine. And so when I applied for vet school the first time around, so this would have been like the fall of my senior year of Uh college, I applied to a couple of different schools and I didn't get in or waitlisted or anything for any of them. And what did you feel? Zero. Like how did You know, I felt kind of like okay about it cuz I was like, okay, well, maybe this isn't for me. That's fine. I was just very casual. Like I wasn't very intense about it at all. Um But that's how I see you. Yeah, I see like, you okay. like that. I I think you take I think you have a very interesting wise way to navigate life. Oh, I always well, told thanks. you that. Well, I do. Yeah. You do. You thanks, do. Yeah. Very wise. Yeah. And so, um, you know, at the same time I was applying to vet school, I had applied to some internships and some other jobs and stuff like cleaning glassware in a lab somewhere, you know, not really sure what I was going to do with my degree in zoology. I didn't, I wasn't really at the point where like graduate school was really much of a thought. And I don't think that I you know, there wasn't any one thing research-wise that I was so passionate about that I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, I absolutely have to do yeah. this. And so I ended up um, getting a really great um, internship opportunity after undergraduate that was in a zoo facility in Florida. And that really is the thing that kind of changed my life's path because mm-hmm. it was there that I saw people who were veterinarians 
working with zoo species in a zoo. And it was like Oprah's aha moment. The little <laughs> light bulb appeared above my head and there's a little chain. I pulled it and then the light bulb went on. It was like, oh, this is the thing that combines all of your interests and your skill sets. And this is what you should do. And I never, it never even occurred to me that zoo medicine was even a thing. It's uh-huh. like, like, oh yeah, dogs and cats, sure, cows. Yeah, I buy that. Horses, chickens, sure, yeah. sure. But zoo medicine, it never even crossed my mind. Never, ever, And ever. how did your family take it? Um, I think <laughs> I think they didn't really understand exactly, but they were supportive. They were like, oh, yeah, okay, honey, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I don't think they really got it until several years into it, but they were supportive. And um, all I did was reapply to vet school. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't apply to very many. I only applied to my state school because I knew that's where I could afford to go for within Mm -hmm. state tuition. Mm -hmm. And then I just had a much more pointed, much more specific essay Mm -hmm. and a little bit more experience in this, you know, in the zoo, zoo world Uh and um, got in from there. Wow. And when you got to vet, uh, to vet school, you mm-hmm. already knew you wanted to work with ZooMed. Right, right. Got it. And that's where I think I got kind of intense about it. Like, <laughs> I, I like knew that I wanted to join the zoo club and I knew that I wanted to do, um, research in the zoo field and I knew the people that I wanted to contact and I knew to do that right away. Mm-hmm. And I, was fortunate enough to be at a school that had a really good peer support group of people mm-hmm. who were interested in the same thing. So the upperclassmen shared their experiences over lunch hour club meetings and said, oh, I went here and this was a really great experience, or I did this and this is how I did it. So it felt very welcoming and it felt mm-hmm. really it, What school was that? Uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin. And then when you apply for internships, did you get them first time? Did you? Um, yeah, so I applied to a small animal rotating internship right after vet school, and um, I did match with that. But it's mm-hmm. a small program, not mm-hmm. a, not a, I would not say it's a well-known program, but mm-hmm. I had started dating Kent at that time and uh-huh. knew that being close was going to be important um, mm-hmm. because our relationship was so new and I really wanted to see where it was going to go. So mm-hmm. we did that. And um, then I applied to residency residencies and zoo internships after my small animal rotating internship and was fortunate enough to get a residency right away. Wow, but I nice. think that's because I had laid the groundwork and created the relationships that helped me to be successful while I was in veterinary school. Mm-hmm. I don't think my internship um, was a major influencing factor. Yeah. I mean, you, when you apply in the match, you're applying in the fall. So you're really only at your internship for a few months. Six months yeah. yeah, yeah. If, if that. Even yeah, yeah. that. If even. So, um, so I think it was everything that I did in vet school that Before. led me to have that success right away. Where did you grow up? In Wisconsin. Oh, so you stay you stay local the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my internship was in Chicago, but my parents are from southeastern Wisconsin, so it really mm-hmm. was only like a hour and a half, two hour drive. So it wasn't too far. And do you have siblings? I do. So I'm the oldest of four. I have two younger sisters and a younger brother, and they're all in Wisconsin. Anyone follow the, the animal path as well? No. <laughs> and before you, anyone? 
Uh, no, not really at all. I would say the closest thing is that my grandmother showed dogs. Um, she had Irish setters and that was like the closest thing. My parents, I had to like beg and cry for a dog as a child. And it was just like, I'm sure I was like very, very sad and very pathetic and very persistent. And eventually we did get a dog. And so then I took the dog to like training class and I would set up agility courses in the backyard. Oh, wow. You're so devoted. Yeah. And then I trained her to like pull me on my rollerblades when I was a kid down the street, which I thought was really amazing. Um, it is very amazing. Yeah. You know, and it's like I was the kid who checked out all the dog books from the library and like memorized all the dog breeds. And I was like, oh, mom, look at this. Um, look at this giant schnauzer. And she'd be like, oh, okay, I whatever, love it. whatever. I but love it. I was like, it. oh, but look at its coat and look at how much bigger it is than this other kind of dog. And can't you tell the difference because the tail is a little bit shorter? And she's like, oh, yeah. Okay, oh, sure. Whatever, whatever yeah. you say, honey. <laughs> yeah. So I was definitely that kid. What did your mom and dad do? Um, my mom is an occupational therapist. So she mm-hmm. works with autistic children in the school systems, um, retired oh, wow. now, but she did mm-hmm. that for um, as long as I can remember. And then my dad is an engineer by training, um, who went back for an MBA and he's in hospital administration. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so they were, t- mom and dad is still together? Yep. Still together. Yep. Still together. Still oh, in the wow. same house we grew up in. Really? Mm-hmm. That's so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so that, do you think how you grew up, like the role model that you had at home, do you think that helped you throughout your career? Yeah. Or is like, like, you know, because sometimes people yeah. have experience that they really want to deviate from what they saw growing mm-hmm. up. They really want to go like the the other extreme. And some people just are so, I don't think nurture is the word correct works, is that it's not lack of being nurtured, mm-hmm. but they are empowered and, you know, and so they follow that path. Mm-hmm. How was it for you? Yeah. I mean, I think they were um, supportive. I mean, I really, really begged for a dog a lot for a long, <laughs> long time <laughs> before uh, before they got on board with that. But yeah, I mean, I think they let me pursue my interests and they were just sort of um, neutral s- slash mm-hmm. supportive. You know, there mm-hmm. wasn't really any opposition um, uh-huh. towards like what my interests were or, or what I wanted to do. And um you know, and how about the price of education? Yeah. Like, because I yeah. think back then it was already a known thing that like his student loans were going to be a big part of it. And yeah, yeah. So when I was poop scooping at that animal <laughs> hospital in high school, I put a percentage of my paycheck away for college every single time I oh, got a paycheck. You are so wise. <laughs> well, that was uh, my parents doing for that, and I did not make all that much, you know, back in the day, um, you know, and it wasn't full-time work or anything, but just trying to start to save for stuff um, was really important. And then um, in undergraduate, I also worked part-time. So I tried mm-hmm. to put that towards tuition, but I definitely had student loans for undergrad and for veterinary school and, um, you know, tried to manage them as best as I can. And really, you know, I'm still working on paying all of those off now. Um mm-hmm. But I think the the price of like pursuing my dream, mm-hmm. my dream job, and having the career and having this life is well is well worth well it. Worth it. Yeah. I learned yeah. that I, uh, Miranda, Doctor Sadar, she actually raised and uh, and sold guinea pigs. Oh, did she <laughs> to vet store when she was a little kid, and oh, all that money went for vet school. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, that's so. Oh cool. my gosh, she would. <laughs> it do is that. so so cool. She would do that. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting yeah. hearing how everybody goes through, you know, pursuing this, you know, this dream and um, how you how you achieve it. It's everybody does it different, you know. That just yeah. tells you there's not a single right way to to do it. You're right, and and then um, you is that okay if we share how you met Kent? Oh, sure. Yeah. So yeah. you guys met online, right? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. It was it Match or uh, something? Mm-hmm. Yep, Match.com. Match.com. And you met yeah. online yeah. in Wisconsin, right? In Wisconsin, that's right. And you've been together for how long? Um, we'll be married eight years um, this July. Eight years. Yeah. yeah. And now, but, now Dr. Moth is pregnant. Yep, yep. A little seven, boy. Seven months pregnant. Yep, and seven feeling months. every pound of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I think one of the things, too, is we, of course, are not on our 20s. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. And the reason why we, I mean, I'm barely 21. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm, t- I'm 38 now. I'm about to be 39 mm-hmm. in April. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it, postponing, even considering have kids, yeah. has to do with our profession and mm-hmm. the way it's structured. Like, mm-hmm. could we even think about having kids doing residency and boards oh like this is like put on hold right that's another yeah. thing yeah but when you're done with all of that as a woman it's so much pressure because mm-hmm. I got done with all of that 2017 so I was like mm-hmm. I don't know 36 something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's already old it's already mm-hmm. considered I think uh, the cutoff advanced maternal age starts at 35 a, a advanced maternal age. Yeah, I, that's I, what the insurance companies will call it. Advanced. Oh, it's not geriatric. Um, some people will call it that, but the insurance company on your paperwork will say advanced maternal age. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so how was that decision? I, I will tell you, like, we struggle a lot with the mm-hmm. decision. I think I shared this with you before. Every yeah. year we would talk about it and every year we would postpone. Mm-hmm. I was not particularly someone that knew I, was, I wanted to be a mother mm-hmm. from the beginning. That's mm-hmm. not something, like, I dreamed with. I grew mm-hmm. up thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I considered not having kids many, many instances. And I was, and I love my kids, but I think I would have been okay with that too. Mm-hmm. And I chose adoption, I would say, or I should say, we chose adoption mainly because I did not want to go through pregnancy at the age I was, mm-hmm. um, you know, medically speaking, not because of the way I look, which I think is fine yeah. too if people make that choice. Mm-hmm. But how about for you? Like, tell me, was yeah. did you always dream about being a mom? How was that decision to get pregnant? Yeah. Was it easy? Yeah. Um, so I don't think I ever had dreams of being a mom specifically. I guess maybe I imagined like having a house and a family someday, but I didn't really have a clear path of how to get there. And I would never have considered myself and still don't consider myself a baby person. You know, Mm -hmm. like how some people are like Mm -hmm. baby people and all they want is babies and all of this. And I was never that person. Um, Kent always knew that he wanted kids and wanted a family and all of that. And he was very, very patient, you know, going through boards and oh, wow. um, giving me the time I needed to kind of deal with that because, you know, frankly, I don't think I could have handled it during residency or during boards yeah. until that test yep. was was done. Mm-hmm. And kudos to anybody who can do that. You are amazing, and there are some women super that do woman. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So yeah, you so are brave and strong. Yeah, brave and strong and courageous yeah. and smart and. Yeah. Good for you. I was not strong enough to do that. So I think when we finish boards, again, I say like when we finish boards, like me and Kent finish boards. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, there was kind of like this 
recovery period where I just wanted to um, like relax and live my life a little bit. And mm-hmm. I was not mentally and emotionally ready to jump into having kids right away. I was said, you know, there's stuff that I want to do with my job and there's stuff that I want to do with my life. And I finally get all this time back and mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I get myself and my career that I've just worked so hard to sort of get to this pinnacle achievement Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, all set and ready. So I wasn't ready for kids right after boards. And, um, and do you mind sharing how old you were at that point? Yeah. So when I finished boards, that would have been 2016. So I would have been, uh, 33 at the time that I finished boards. Yeah. So you like have literally like two years to the Mm -hmm. side. It's like that the clock is literally ticking. Right, right, right. And then, you know, you think about all of these different opportunities that could come along for your Mm -hmm. career Mm -hmm. and how would a baby impact that. And for a long time, I really ended up prioritizing those things that had, that, you know, were related to my career versus my potential future family life and personal life. And And did you feel guilty about that? Did you feel the pressure? Yeah, 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 definitely. And Kent definitely, um, you know, did not agree with me on everything. But Mm -hmm. of course, he was very patient. And he, he was just very, very patient. And he always said that he wanted to have, uh, you know, kids before 40. And so Mm -hmm. it took us a long time, you know, conception is not uh, an easy thing. And I think there's sort of this thought that when you're ready, everything will just magically mm-hmm. happen instantly on the schedule that you want it to happen on. And mm-hmm. that just really isn't the, that just really isn't the case. So, um, we're pregnant now, which is great. So now I'm 36 and Kent is, uh, going to be 40 in December. So we're just under hey, the you wire. Did it. You did yeah, it. We're <laughs> under the wire. Yeah, we're under the wire. So that's really good. Um, but yeah, it took a while to to get here. And now that we are here, I feel much more um, comfortable. And I feel like my focus has sort of shifted much more towards, you know, house and home and family. And I feel much more um, balanced. I feel much more balanced. Did you feel any pressure? Because I will tell you this. I I had a lot of grief when I would tell people. First, uh, like the whole thing, maybe less than on my mom's time, but I did hear some like, when you're going to have kids, especially my family. Mm-hmm. I have part of my family is very conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my family, unfortunately, is very sexist still. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brazil is a very sexy, sexy, sexist country and... Uh, like sad to say, but it's true. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a macho society. Um, sure. So where people still don't even neuter their dogs because it's not going to be a mm. boy dog oh. or whatever, you know. So yeah. it, it was, I I got a lot of that because I was always putting my career in front of personal life, in front mm-hmm. of like kids and even marriage. And I mm-hmm. got married, I was 30. I was, mm-hmm. you know, that's quote-unquote late for my family not my oh, not sure. my immediate family understood but like yeah. uncles and cousins yeah, get, and all um yeah so and then kids like everybody like pressure with kids and you're not gonna have kids and you're mm-hmm. gonna lose your husband because you know you're not giving them kid him kids and whatnot mm-hmm. and when we decided to adopt and i would tell people that first they would assume we had an infertility problem mm-hmm. and they will be very I, I i call the turning head neck so they'll be like oh and they will turn their neck oh you couldn't have kids and they will be so nice and loving i'm like no no i we can we just chose not to and then they would mm-hmm. turn it back wait what 
<laughs> and they will give me grief and tell me, yeah. like, some people told me I should go to a psychiatrist because I was mm-hmm. denying my inner female, whatever, oh that I would never. It's like such baloney. I know, but I got a lot of that. And I would never, like, some people, like, you have to have. Oh, the, everybody says that. Once you adopt, you're going to have your own biological kid. I was like, mm-hmm. you're kind of missing the picture here. The right. reason why we're going through this. Right. Even right. at that, that to me was, like, shocking. Even at the adoption um when you go in front of the judge, oh my God, I forgot the name. Um, what was that called when you like go in the front cust- of the judge? Custody? It's not that, cu- it's like, yeah, when you have a scheduled date with a, with a court, uh, the oh, court like date, your- the court oh, date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. on the court date, um, the social workers, like they're psychologists, and they mm-hmm. were like, oh, now that everything's done, you're going to see, you're going to have a biological kid. I was like, I can't believe you, above all, right. is saying Somebody that. It's like yeah, and it's just like it's, it's it's crazy to me. It is. And how yeah. was it for you? Like, yeah, a lot of the same stuff of like, oh, when are you going to have kids? Constantly, constantly. And it's like, well, first of all, it's not really any of your business. And you know, yes. people telling you how you should feel um, doesn't feel great. And I think um, one of the problems that I see is like people are very familiar with the story. You know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage. And then they just know that that's the narrative. You get married, you have kids, and this is just like your role Mm -hmm. in life. Then you Mm -hmm. devote your life to your children and all of these other things go on pause. And that's like the familiar story that people are generally very comfortable with. And when you deviate from that story or something doesn't go as planned or you purposely choose to do something different with your Mm -hmm. life that – is separate than that narrative, people don't know what to say and they don't know how to yes. react because they don't, they just don't have that storyline in their, in their mind and they just don't know what to say. Yes. And that's why I think people say, Oh, when are you going to have kids? Because they want to get you back on track, yeah. back into that familiar story. Yeah. And, um, that's just, you know, that's just not but how did it you is. feel guilty? Like, because for moments for me, I was like, am I doing, like, because so many people are telling me this, is, is, am I crazy? Like, or I would initially start feeling guilty. I'm like, no, no, stop that. This is crazy. Go back to the why, mm-hmm. your reason, mm-hmm. the why you did this. And, but would, would that get to you? Like, at yeah, all? it would, especially people that I would have to tell repeatedly that we'll have kids when we're ready. And, that it's not really something that I want to talk about, like, you know, with family members, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I think sometimes they they have good intentions and they mean well, but the constant barrage of questioning, you know, it gets kind of annoying. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, de- um, I don't want to say demeaning, but it does kind of feel demeaning. Like, it is demeaning. Like, uh, it is really. You know, I just, you know, pass this boards exam and I'm living my dream and I'm helping, yeah. you know, animals and I'm able to travel and I see my friends and yeah. I get to live yeah. this life that I want that I've worked really hard for, but it doesn't really matter all that much because I haven't yeah. had a baby. Because that's not a real accomplishment, right? right? The real accomplishment right. would be if you gave birth right. to a baby. Right, And not saying that giving birth to a baby, great, what, wonderful, whatever, but for me, it definitely felt like um, what I was doing was some sort of consolation prize to this other thing that I hadn't 
achieved yet. Yes. Well, but it, I think why you raise a very good point. I want to make it very mm-hmm. clear right here, right now. I'm not. I'm pro-choice mm-hmm. of everything in life. Like, if you want to have kids, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Go have kids. If you are a baby right. person, go have 10,000 right. babies. If you are a career person, go, go mm-hmm. your career. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm about choices. The thing that I'm not about is when you're doing things to conform. Right. You really don't want to do that, but that's right. the path that everybody right. goes through, and then right. you need and to what do did, that. And I think What did Zoo, we say when we yeah. were studying? You do you. You do you, you, do, girl. you girl. You just do you. Yeah. Like whatever <laughs> it is, you just do you. Yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, I know you got that from, what is oh, the name of the show? Yeah, the RuPaul's Drag Race. Race. Yeah, I love that show. RuPaul. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I think yeah, it's a great role model yeah. to live life. And you taught me that during the boards, and I use yeah, that still today you, in my you life. You do like, you. you. Like, do you, like you, whatever girl. that thing is, don't let yeah. anybody else take yeah. you down for it. Have confidence in yourself. But it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. hard. But you just got to do your own thing. And, and yeah. That's and it. then when you got mm-hmm. pregnant, and I think because I think we share mm-hmm. similar thoughts, even though we chose mm-hmm. different paths, um, pathways to have kids, but I think we share a lot of the same ideas and mm-hmm. concepts of what mm-hmm. pregnancy is. And the reason I want to bring it up is I do believe that as doctors, we knew mm-hmm. better. I, I don't want to say that, of course, I don't think you knew everything right, you were going right. to getting into no... yourself into because as long as, I mean, you can only know right. when you experience it, but I think you had a mm-hmm. good idea of things oh, that could yeah. go wrong. Um, and because mm-hmm. we, we live that, right? Mm-hmm. It goes wrong with animals. We know the risk factors mm-hmm. are kind of similar. Um, and I don't think people actually think right. about that. And I think women just think they have to go through this because everybody mm-hmm. else does. But it's not an easy task. Mm-mm. It's not an easy no, task. No, being pregnant is not easy. And, um, you know, I think especially being a veterinarian and um, even maybe more so in like a zoo field, it's like... Because you have a very, a very physical, physical job, job, right? You work in a zoological institution, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like a traditional zoo. Right. And you... Yeah. In Texas, where it's very mm-hmm. hot... Yeah, and you've so, got to keep, you know, keep up, keep doing your job. Um, you know, of course, you know, make sure that you get rest, drink plenty of water and all of that. But I think that there is this, um, you know, we all we all want to do well at our job because we've worked really hard to get there. And mm-hmm. so I think we do tend to, or I tend to, you know, push myself to keep working, keep doing those things, keep performing at the same level, even, even while pregnant. And I imagine that that's the same in you know, most other professions too. And I think, um, I don't think I had a good appreciation for the kind of physical, mental, and emotional effort that, um, it sometimes takes to continue to perform at that same level. So you just can't, right? Because you need to eat every so often, which in veterinary life, not always you do, Mm -hmm. which is completely wrong. And I don't want to perpetuate that Mm -hmm. thought. But you work long hours, mm-hmm. you don't eat, you mm-hmm. walk, you are on your feet mm-hmm. all the time in the zoo, like uphill, mm-hmm. downhill and, yeah. and carrying things, carrying equipment, carrying mm-hmm. animals, carrying like, it's, it's very physical, like li- up right. and down. Right. And like for some enclosures you need to climb mm-hmm. or go down or like it, it's, I can't stop thinking of how that experience yeah, is for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, um, I've got some really great coworkers that if there is something that I don't feel comfortable doing now, especially that I'm so large <laughs> and off balance, uh-huh. that they really step in and step up um, to fill those those sorts of roles. I think, um, you know, the the other part is, you know, not just the physical part, but the mental part of just being pregnant and being tired and, um, you know, 
having this like tiny baby always being preoccupying um, is like keeping up with things like the emails and troubleshooting and running from one uh, one problem that you have to solve to another problem you have to solve. Sometimes that's even more exhausting than the physical oh, really? part, I would say, sometimes. How did that change like since you've been pregnant? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the time and energy it takes you know, the further along in my pregnancy I get, the less energy I have overall to spend on that sort of stuff. And I think it just makes mm-hmm. me, you know, more tired or maybe, um, you know, it's just a little bit more taxing than it would be being not pregnant, having a little bit more energy. Wow. Yeah, because I even like, I keep thinking like, because especially when you deal with certain animals, like if they... Like if you're dealing with the elephants mm-hmm. or dealing with the sea lions, like if they get you on the wrong mm-hmm. way, it might really hurt yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, for be- sure. Yeah, wow. for sure. So wow. for some of those, and how did you deal with like emotional? Did you have morning sickness? How, did you have all uh, of that? not so much morning sickness? I had more like food aversions. So like there were certain things I would smell and be like, oh my gosh, no way, I'm not going to eat that. I can't be around that. Because if you're in the middle of an enclosure, like in whatever, there's no bathroom nearby, mm-hmm. and you feel nauseated, what would you do? I keep thinking about that. Like, <laughs> did she carry a bag Probably, with her all probably, the time? You know, unfortunately, I didn't have that problem. But I suppose like if you're feeling like you're gonna barf, then you're probably just going to find the nearest trash can and just do it. <laughs> right, because yeah. if you work in an office, you run to the mm-hmm. bathroom if you're at home. But like in the middle of a freaking zoo, where yeah. do you go? Come and like sometimes you have people can. watching yeah. you. Nearest trash can oh and hope nobody records it for YouTube or something like hideous <gasps> like oh that. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, but tell me the real raw stuff about pregnancy. The real raw stuff about pregnancy? Oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, yeah. I would say... Can you poop? Um, most of the time. Are you constipated? Yeah. Constipation <laughs> definitely has been uh, one surprise with pregnancy. I would also say just like your the general like size and shape of your body really changes. And it's not just your abdomen. Like my legs are very swollen from my feet like all the way up. And it changes... Can you still wear the same shoes? Um, yes. So I wear moccasins quite a lot and they are very uh-huh. loose fitting to start with. So that's really good. But it's, it's like totally wild because the, um, swelling in my legs can really fluctuate up and down quite, quite a lot during the day. Uh huh. Um, so that was one thing that I knew was a possibility. But until you experience it, it's like, Oh my gosh. Whoa. That is like the difference of like a pant size or two sometimes. So oh, wow. I would say that. And then, um, like I had pretty significant back pain and sciatic nerve pain around the 23rd week. And I like to the point you could, you could barely walk yeah, or just was, you like, could really manage uncomfortable. I couldn't sleep, couldn't get comfortable, had like pillows and the special maternity wedges and like nothing seemed to help. And I really expected that later on in pregnancy, but that was really earlier than, um, than I guess I knew to expect. So that was very, um, that was a surprise as well. And, uh, how about like peeing because you need to pee all the time. And again, in the middle of the zoo. Yeah. You just, you just plan it. You know, usually if I'm going, do you wear diapers? Like what do you do? (laughs) No diapers, but yeah, I just plan on uh, going ahead of time. And usually before a procedure, you know, when we're just sort of wrapping up of, we know we're going to be out for a long time. It's like, okay, everybody make sure you go, you know, make sure you go to the bathroom, grab a snack, grab your water bottle. We're not going to be back for a while. So I, I guess like 
in a way you could say uh-huh. I'm practicing my mom, my mom skills, like, okay, <laughs> get your granola bar, try going potty, and then we're going to reconvene here in five minutes, and then we're going to leave. So I try uh-huh. to plan around that. And then I think just knowing where all your bathroom options are, if you do get out there. Like, oh, <laughs> like before you go anywhere, wait, let me see if there are bathrooms. Let me see how cold they are. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I know the porta potties over here, or I know I can go over here or over here. Or, you know, if you really got desperate, it could be like, okay, I'm going to text my coworker and be like, oh, can you come in here for like five minutes, please? And just relieve me and I'm going to go. And then oh, you thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. And what are the things like that you experienced that you thought were wild or you didn't think were going to have that much oh, of impact? Yeah. One thing that I actually was um, kind of surprised at, and this is like nothing physical, but I started to read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And yeah. it was awful. It was it really was so what? awful. I think it was because it made me feel very fearful of pregnancy and you know, it's like, oh, if you have one pepperoni, you are going to have this terrible birth defect. And there was like very little context around that. And I was just getting myself so worked up over every little thing. I was like, just very afraid of like doing anything or going anywhere or eating anything. It's like, I should just be in a bubble and I'm just going to eat like um, filtered water and um you know, organic fruits and vegetables that are washed three times and like wheat toast plain. And it was just too much. And I ended up getting rid of the book because I just couldn't take it anymore. It's oh, just, wow. I never heard of that before. Not that yeah, I... I just I mean, had again, to get rid of it. And I was like, I need huh. something that gives me real information and something that doesn't make me feel so afraid of everything or make me feel like I'm doing everything wrong or that I'm a failure or that I'm going to fall into these pitfalls every single thing I try to do. So um, that was one thing that was really surprising. And then I ended up reading this other book, um, Expecting Better by Emily Oster. It's mm. um, She's yeah. an economist and she did a lot of research, which I appreciate. And she actually gives you statistics uh-huh. and she gives you um, well-reasoned wealth like the, the facts. facts, right? And I found that uh-huh. much more comforting and much more reassuring. Because that's how our brains are yeah, trained. Exactly. Yeah. So that was one thing that really surprised me. Because it's like, oh yeah, what you expect when you're expecting? Everybody reads this. This is the classic. It's the bestseller. It's the number one on Google. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to be totally good. And it just really, really freaked me out. And I was like getting like oh, really wow. upset. And I would read something, and I'd go in the other room, and I'd yell at Kent, and I say, Kent, do you know this about um, mozzarella cheese? <laughs> And he'd be like, oh, my God, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you're talking like a crazy person right now. And it really did make me feel crazy because I just felt like I couldn't do anything right. Did you have mood swings? Oh, I'm sure Kent would say yes. (laughs) I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would say yes. I think I would be unbearable. I think I did a favor to the world by not getting pregnant. I'm telling you that. I would be unbearable. Like, I, I think mood-wise, I would be, like, over the top. Yeah. And then I would pass my genetics, which would be the same. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I did the world. You welcome, world. I did the world of favor. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Besides, I could never make such wonderful kids like I have. So, like, I just yeah. think 
or I don't know. But did you have them? Would you like get start crying oh, yeah. out of oh, the my blue gosh, yeah, or like, like things like that? What's like? There's like some Google commercial that um, is very emotional about like a man, you know, talking to his daughter at college. It's like, oh, it's so sweet. I can't. I just love it so much. You know that I experienced that too. Like I, I am. I consider myself kind of very mm -hmm. tough, and like sometimes I think I don't have a heart. Oh, you like, do because I don't cry like with like this. I'm gonna call them cheesy, but not in a pejorative way. But I usually don't, you know. Although I did cry on the Lion King. That's I guess okay. That That's okay. It's sad. Oh, no. It's sad. It's <laughs> very nice. sad. But after uh, we adopted the kids, first I do think I experienced um, post-adoption depression. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't diagnosed. I didn't go to a psychiatrist or a therapist at that time, as I, mm -hmm. I should uh, have. Um, but we focus so much on the kids that we forget mm -hmm. us. And we, like, we provided them with therapy, but I forgot mm -hmm. about me. And going back, I would have done the opposite because I can tell you this. Every time I'm not okay, I'm not mm -hmm. a good mom. Like, even if I'm focusing on them and devoting the time to them, if I don't divide the time for myself... Mm -hmm. I'm not that good. When I am centered, when I'm mm -hmm. calm, when I devote the time for me, it sounds counterproductive, right? Because it's time away from mm -hmm. them to dedicate to mm -hmm. me. But I'm a better yeah. mom. And the house goes mm -hmm. better, the whole, like, thing. But anyway, after I adopted them, I went through this depression, and I really did start experiencing being more sensitive, mm -hmm. like seeing things in commercials and mm -hmm. crying or you know, sobbing over things that I wouldn't necessarily, yeah. which is crazy because biologically nothing mm -hmm. had changed. So I don't know how much of that is, it's the mind because I would read like post pardon depression mm -hmm. to understand what was mm -hmm. happening to me. And I had those mm -hmm. symptoms and I'm like, but I didn't give mm -hmm. birth. And then I started researching and I start seeing that It is a thing like postpartum yeah, depression. Yeah, you can have it. And it has different, like, like right? Different, yeah, a different um, spectrum. Levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spectrums. But I certainly did experience yeah. that. And I certainly felt guilty so many times because everybody has this, like, I'm sure it's like that for pregnancy too, like this rainbow unicorn mm -hmm. stories that you look at your kid and you fall in love yeah, and like not reality. sparkles go and then it's a love match. And it's not yeah, like that. It's, really. it's like a bunch of strangers mm -hmm. meeting that want that to work, but we are really mm -hmm. strangers. Like we don't know mm -hmm. each other and now we need to live in the mm -hmm. same house. And my daughter sleeps with her eyes half open. <laughs> and the first I night that I go into her room, seriously, that. I was like, Steven, I can't go there. <laughs> like, no. Like, And one day, like, she woke up. Like, I went there because she made a noise. I went there. She was speaking while she was sleeping and, like, with her eyes, <laughs> like, half open. And I, like, freaked me out so much. I was like, Chloe, Chloe, are you okay? And she opened her eyes like in a zombie <laughs> mall like this. And, and like, oh gosh, you know, Chuck yeah, the doll, yeah. you know, like, I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening? I'm like, go back to sleep. And she was like, yes, mommy. And like, she, I was like, oh, my God, this girl is possessed. Oh, like, my gosh. I can't go there again. I hope she doesn't get dry eyes. But oh my God. I, I know. I, I Sometimes I go there and close it. Oh, like, that's so I helpful. Need, See, you're a good mom. Close her eyes. Yeah, but like, But I, I definitely felt the pressure and I felt, and it was actually on Instagram, I, I found another adoptive mom that, and I hate that term adoptive mom, but anyway, I found another mom that had experienced that mm -hmm. too. And she said, oh, I only start loving my kids about eight months mm -hmm. in. And because I was like feeling so guilty. 
Yeah. And it's hard emotions. And then, too. but you know, that day I decided I'm not going to feel guilty about these mm-hmm. things anymore. And I do travel for mm-hmm. work and I, they're well taken mm-hmm. care. You know, they have a father who cares for them and I travel for work and I do my stuff and I do mm-hmm. work. And then Bo sometimes comes and said, one day he said, well, I'm going to go to work with you. Oh. I said, oh, baby, you know, mommy's going to go to work. I will take you one day for you to see. It's like, no, mom, I don't want to see. I just want to help you so you can come home oh, earlier. Oh, my gosh. I was like, oh, oh man. That gets like, at your heartstrings. You yeah, and I was like, you know, mommy's doing something good for the world. I believe on what mm-hmm. I do and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have it to explain. I never say, like, I have to work. I said, I want to work because I'm helping the animals. And mm-hmm. thanks for saying that. And I, But... It gets tricky. And I think having a baby is going to be trickier mm-hmm. because physically they depend mm-hmm. on you, which like, you know, my kids were pretty much could be raised by two men because, you know, physically yeah, right. they don't depend right, on right. me. Um, but yeah, I feel yeah. that. How's that like panning out for yeah. you? Now, well, I think you have a really good point about how, you know, when you're not okay, you know, other things in your life aren't okay. You know, work, home, mm-hmm. kids, spouse. And I think that's really important. Um for all women, but especially women in veterinary medicine, is to make sure that you yeah. take care of yourself because you because we are we're caregivers. caregivers. We don't care mm-hmm. for ourselves. You have to have compassion for yourself before you can have compassion for others and compassion mm-hmm. for other animals. And um, you need to be able to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you can't do a good job anywhere. You know. And then, and what do you do to take care of yourself? I, I like you have good strategies yeah, at work. Yeah. So I have I have some coping mechanisms at work. Well, I kind of jokingly say take a moment of Zen. So that's where if I'm feeling like really frustrated, what I do is I just go to the bathroom, even if Mm -hmm. I don't have to go. And I just go in there. Mm -hmm. And then which I'm sure is not common right now. Right. You have to go go all all the the time. time. I'm sure you can squeeze a pee. Right. And you just go in there and you just like close the door and you just like Breathe it in, breathe it out, say whatever you need to say, make whatever face you need to make, and just like recenter yourself. And the beauty is, is that nobody's going to follow you in there. Nobody's going to ask you what you were doing in there. Nobody's going to care how long you were in there. And then they especially won't ask you what you were doing in there. So it's just like getting a little moment of privacy that you just like get away from whatever's bothering you, find your own little quiet spot. And for me, that's the bathroom. Um, because it's like the one place nobody's going to go in after you. I know. But you have words of yes, affirmation too, right? Don't yeah, you say? Yeah. So, Thick skin. Yeah. Like, tell me, because that, that marked yeah, me too. Yeah, so then um, when I'm having my moment of zen in the bathroom, I say, you know, make sure you have broad shoulders and thick skin. Broad shoulders, broad thick children. skin. And I got thick that skin. from uh, one of my residency mentors. And that really stuck with me because it's like, yeah, you're right. You shoulder a lot of responsibility. You problem solve for other people. You take care of sick animals. And often those sick animals, I would say 100% of the time, are attached to people who also need care mm-hmm. because they feel mm-hmm. attached. They feel sad. They may feel confused or upset. So you have to take care of all of those people. And then you have to have thick skin because people will say things and do things that will, um, you know, could be either misinterpreted or could be hurtful, or they're saying it out of a place of emotion because it's a tense situation mm-hmm. or um, because they're frustrated. And so you have to be able to deal with that and deal with it all in stride. So broad shoulders, thick skin. And that helps me yeah. to 
to cope with whatever happens at work. And, you know, sometimes you have to say it outside of work too, and that's okay. Just find something, some mantra to recenter yourself. I think that's really important. Yeah. What is something that you are really, really proud mm. that you did in your yeah. life? Yeah. Um, I would say I'm most proud of making it this far. Kent always has a really good perspective. He's a very um, reflective, introspective person. And he always says something like, Christine, if you could go back in time and you could tell first year veterinary student, Christine, where you're at now, um, you know, 10 years later, what would she say? How like, she would be really amazed that she made it through vet school, made friends, pursued her career, um, got her dream residency, and then got her dream job, and then passed the board's exam and is achieving, you know, all of the goals that she set out to do professionally, saving animals, working on conservation, doing research, uh, contributing to the greater good, writing, um, having good professional colleagues, and being married. And he would always, you know, throw in to a man who's handsome and loves you very much and looking at having a baby. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's like, that's like pretty amazing. That's, that's a, a lot. Of stuff. You did, yeah, you I girl. Did yeah. And, yeah. And so all of that is, is it um, just really. It's just really amazing, you know, and we had talked before about veterinary students seeing what it is to be, you know, um, somebody who's at the end of their career path, you know, has all of these things, you know, seemingly all together, you know, a mm -hmm. personal life, of a social life, a professional yeah. life, all you know, personal satisfaction, all of that stuff. But that doesn't just happen instantly. It's this long yeah. winding yeah. path that's journey. different for everybody. And, and it's a journey that is not a straight it is line, not a straight right? Line. It's up and right, down, up right. and down, up and down. Up, I mean, going upwards mm -hmm. slowly, but it's up and down, up right. and down. Up and, and having down. the persistence to do that and to, yeah. you know, avoid the pitfalls or when you do fall into, um, you know, trouble that you're able to get your way out of that, find another way keep marching towards, you know, that end goal that you have, no matter what. You need to be a believer, you to be like a believer. you really need to believe. Yeah, yeah you yeah. do. And what would Christine today, at what point would this Christine today go back in Christine's mm -hmm. life in a very tough mm -hmm. moment? What was that moment and what would Christine, today's Christine say? Um, oh, gosh. I would say take it one step at a time. You don't need to make big, giant leaps towards these goals. One baby step at a time, one foot in front of the other. You can do it. This is how you get to the end. You don't get there by making big, long jumps. You get there one small step at a time. Persistence. That's going to pay off. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. right. Oh, my God. Always so lovely talking about you, <laughs> about you oh, with thanks. you. You're, you're so like grounded. I, I feel like you're so grounded. You're so you have such a positive attitude towards oh, life. I, you know? It's you know, I it's it's yeah. uh it's conscious. It's conscious, you know, you just It is, it's, it's a, a choice. choice. You, it's a choice you make. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm saying that it's wise because it's not you were not born mm -hmm. like that. You choose mm -hmm. that. You choose that positivity. Even when I see you angry, it's cute. <laughs> oh thanks. Because like <laughs> Because you let yourself be angry, but at the same time, you focus back and you take a step mm -hmm. wise. Okay, let me get out mm -hmm. of this and how do I take mm -hmm. out of it? Like, 
And it's like in, in moments where I was panicking about boards, I would call mm-hmm. you and you would be like, but put in perspective mm-hmm. and like do this yeah, and do that and like and go step mm-hmm. motion is like adorable. And <laughs> modern adorable is like actually takes a very strong person to do that. It looks like you might be sweet and like fragile, but it's actually mm-hmm. quite the opposite. To get to that mm-hmm. state, it takes a lot of mm-hmm. strength, a lot oh, of strength which I can't necessarily do all the time. And um, before we go, tell us about your course of Ed Ahead. Is it uh, a course about pet chickens? Mm -hmm. And are you excited about that? Tell us a little bit about it. So, um, you know, backyard chickens and pet chickens are ever increasing in popularity. And so Mm -hmm. their need for medical care is also growing in in need. Um, And it's really not just a a rural phenomenon. It's everywhere. It's every city, every state, everywhere. And chickens are great. They're really comical, lovely animals that, um, you know, can produce eggs if um, you choose to do that and also can make relatively good family pets too. So there's a, a lot of different niches that chickens fill. And so the course is going to be a comprehensive overview for veterinary professionals about how to take care of them, go through different organ systems, respiratory tract, GI tract, derm, reproductive tract. We know that's very important for chickens and hopefully provide the need to know information that will help Mm -hmm. clinicians be successful in their own practices. Absolutely. It's like helping and supporting Mm -hmm. and empowering the vets Mm -hmm. out there to feel that they have the tools they need to provide for these mm-hmm. animals and care for them and care for their families right. and really spread the knowledge, which is one thing I really mm-hmm. learned going through all this study time is like, you know, don't withhold knowledge, mm-hmm. spread mm-hmm. the knowledge. The more you spread, the more it grows right. and the more you get back. Right, and, right, right. So, the need to know information yeah. to be to be yep. successful, right? And yeah. I think that can yeah. be a real challenge um, when you're seeing a species that's either new for you or new to your practice mm-hmm. or you're looking to integrate it or you're just looking for some tips and tricks to be, um, yeah. you know, on that path of continual improvement that I think we all strive mm-hmm. for as vets. Um, so I think it fills all of those needs. Yes, it does. So if you want to learn more about um, this course and other courses at Vet Ahead, go to vetahead.vet. That is vetahead.vet, and you can check all your courses. Mm-hmm. Thank you You're so welcome. much, Christine. It's Thank you for uh, having me. It's so lovely talking to you. I hope you all guys have enjoyed, and I'll talk to you guys on the next podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, all right. Welcome to The Honest Mistake. This is the segment of the episode we kind of self-correct and fact-check what we said, things that might have gone wrong. And today, there was not much to correct, to be honest, in this episode. But I, I did look up some curious facts. Oh, I did say one thing incorrectly, though, and that was the number of sheets in a regular copy paper pack. I know you can find it on different sizes, but the size we I was referring and we are most used to, it has 500 sheets, not 100, as I said during the episode. So that means Dr. Motor had to learn any study on at least 3,000 pages. What about that? I did everything digitally, so I don't know how many pages I actually had, but I doubt it was less than that. 
Dr. Mota also mentioned she considered becoming a folklorist. And I had to look it up to understand it a little bit better. It seemed like folklore studies or folklore studies, um, also known as folklorists, it's a branch of anthropology that is devoted to study the folklore. And folklorists work in a variety of settings, including various academic departments in colleges and universities, libraries, museums, archives, historical associations, arts councils, publishing industry, funding agency, the federal government, even the, I, I found even in the movie industry. And that's just to name a few. So it's, it's a, bigger market that I expected. And folklorists study and document traditional ways of doing things. And that can include ways of making crafts, playing music, dancing, working, telling stories, telling jokes, or celebrating the important states of life. It does seem like a very fascinating uh, profession. It would be super cool just to study one's way of living life. It's very, very cool. Last, we also mentioned feeling like an imposter, an imposter sometimes, or the imposter syndrome. So I, I looked it up, the definition of imposter syndrome, and it seems like, and again, full disclosure, this is coming from Wikipedia, so <laughs> um, let's take it with a grain of salt, but it's also called as imposter phenomenon or imposterisms, uh, imposterism and fraud syndrome, or the imposter experience is a physiological pattern in which one doubts one's accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. They also say that despite external evidence of their competence, those experiencing this phenomenon remain convinced that they are a fraud and do not deserve all they have achieved. Individuals with imposterism incorrectly attribute their success to luck or interpret it as a result of deceiving others into thinking they are more intelligent than they perceive themselves to be. While early research focused on the prevalence among high-achieving women, surprise, surprise, right? Imposter syndrome has been recognized to affect both men and women equally. I also found that the feeling of being a fraud which is the imposter phenomenon, it's not uncommon. It actually has been estimated that nearly 70% of individuals will experience signs of, of uh, symptoms of imposter phenomenon at least once in their life. This can be a result of a new academic or professional setting, and research shows that imposter phenomenon is not uncommon for students who enter a new academic environment. Feelings of insecurity can come as a result of an unknown new environment. And that can lead to lower self-confidence and belief in their ability or doubt their own abilities. It's fascinating, isn't it? I bet you already felt like that at some point. I certainly did. But nowadays I know that I'm not an imposter. I actually worked very hard and I actually accomplished everything with hard work and of course, there is a little bit of luck on all of that, but that's not to say that I am an imposter or I feel like that anymore. So that was it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this. I hope you did feel like a romantic comedy and I hope you could experience it, how positive and warm it is to talk to Dr. Christine Motor. And I will see you in the next, or better than see you, I will hear you, I will talk to you, I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Bye. <laughs>